Revelation, the 21st chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoporus, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter it anything, into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written 
in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. That's what we have to look forward to. Believers. Forever. Is there any water over there? It seems like have any or if you can find yourself people appreciate that we are getting pretty dry. They're supposed to have a pitcher out for us, but that doesn't uh, you might check the kitchen and you wouldn't mind just getting a glass of water out of the shelf. Well, now that we've read that, would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please? We'll begin in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We've read about, now that's going to happen right before the coming of the new earth, the new heaven and new earth. We've looked at this before. There's no rapture other than that. Uh, Today we're going to be looking into some of the deep things of God, some of the Mysteries that are secrets, secrets that are only hinted at in Scripture. Thank you. A word here, a phrase there. So it's not right to draw conclusions from skimpy evidence, and it would be wrong to build doctrine from skimpy evidence. Uh, But the hints are very intriguing, and I'm going to be using words, qualifying words like possible or perhaps. Uh, In one or two cases, I'll probably use the word likely, but if some of what I'm about to tell you uh, uh, seems far-fetched to you, then just reject it. Uh, I'll try not to say anything that can't be supported by the scriptures, but you are to be a Berean, and as I've reminded you, when Paul preached the Bereans, uh, they went and checked the scriptures to see what he said was true. He commended them for it. He said they were much better than the other people who didn't do that. So if, if you, you know, certainly do that with me if you're going to do it with Paul. Uh, you know, I once thought that life after death was shrouded in mystery. I thought the teachings of the Bible were pretty much limited to Christians go to heaven, non-Christians go to hell. And other than that, we don't really know. Uh, the passage from 1 Thessalonians we just read that, uh, says it's the Lord's will that Christians do know a lot more than that about life after death. Uh, the Holy Spirit, speaking to your Apostle Paul, makes that clear. The afterlife is not supposed to be a total mystery. It's our responsibility to learn as much as we can about it from the Bible. It's very uh, inspiring. I mean, the book of Revelation itself says you'll get a blessing uh, from studying it. Uh, it's the only book that specifically says that in the Bible. Now, we're commanded here in 1 Thessalonians not to be ignorant about it. Uh, well... So we have hope. It says that right there. Uh, We don't grieve like unbelievers who have no hope after death, uh, who think, you know, you just go out of existence or something like that. 
Uh, and so we can comfort each other, it says that we just read. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ comforting one another when the shadow of death appears in our, in our lives, uh, as it does for everyone. Uh, now, I want to go back and reemphasize a key point that I made before, but it fits in here. I think it's always good to remind ourselves of some truths. A lot of Christians think that when a believer dies, they go directly to heaven and they're there forever. Uh, Well, if we belong to Christ, we do immediately go to heaven. That is true. Uh, But as I've said before, that's a temporary condition. Uh, it's, It's an intermediate state. It's not our permanent home. Heaven is not our permanent home. Uh, it's not going. It's not the normal condition uh, for us. Uh, at the last day, when Jesus returns to Earth, uh, the, the final day of this present Earth, believers are uh, dead. Believers are resurrected. Ones that are alive on the Earth are caught up with the resurrected ones to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and we're all given, both the dead in Christ and the if. if those that are alive on the earth will be given resurrected bodies uh, and our spirit and, uh, and, and our, uh, for, for those who had already died their spirits will be joined to these resurrected bodies of course our spirit if we're alive at the time would be joined to, to this resurrected body uh, and that is the condition in which we will live forever with Christ with a resurrected body uh, and in that time we, the new earth will be uh, come down and we will live on the new earth in our resurrected body. Uh, so when we speak of, uh, of of heaven where those who die in Christ are right now, we're speaking of an intermediate or temporary state. Uh, now a lot of people have trouble believing that a heaven exists because they can't see it. Uh, some of these people don't believe in God for the same reason. I'm sure you've met people who say, well, show me God. Uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, it's, I don't know one of the Jewish Torah or the, the, these various books uh, and in, in in one of them uh, there's a story of a man who went to the rabbi and said uh, well show me God I, I I you know I want to see God and the rabbi says okay well, the first thing you have to do I want you to look at the sun for one minute. And so he looks at the sun, and of course, he immediately brings his eyes down. And the rabbi says, what's the matter? And he said, well, I can't look at the sun for more than half a second. Uh, and he says, and the rabbi says, so you're telling me that you cannot look at the sun, which is a relatively, in the expanse of the universe, a relatively insignificant creation of God, and you, you want to look at God? So... The, the point is, you, you know, you want to see God. And you, you, you know, you don't believe in anything that's, that you can't see. Well, uh, do you think that because you can't see something, therefore it's not real? I mean, that's a mistake that most children would not make. Uh, you, therefore, oxygen, air doesn't exist because you can't see it. Mathematics doesn't exist because you can't see it. Oh, you can see little numbers, but those are only symbols of mathematics. Mathematics itself doesn't, you can't see. You can't see the laws of morality. You can't see the laws of physics. Uh, What about light waves? 
we can see because of the effect of light waves on our eyes, but we can't actually see the waves. If we could see the waves, this room would be just full of all sorts of things going on. There's radio waves, television waves, cell phone waves, you know, satellite waves, all sorts of uh, light waves going on. You see, we can only see that the visible or the light spectrum is long, and we can see like that part of it. Um, all par- they're all carried by light waves, all these things. Uh, so to say that, you know, oh, I can't see atoms, they must not exist. Molecules, they can't exist. Uh, bacteria, nah. Viruses, they can't exist. I can't see them. You know, some bacteria you can see in a microscope, okay. But a lot of things you can't see. Uh, there must be no stars beyond what we can see in our telescopes. They can't exist because we can't see them. Uh, music can't exist, can it? You can hear it, but you can't see it. Uh, logic must not exist. Can't see that. Thoughts, love. How can love exist? I don't see it. I see the effects of it, maybe, but I don't see love itself. So my point is, you know, I won't belabor that. Uh, just because you can't see angels, can't see souls, can't see God, they're very real. They're very real. Or as C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, heaven is normally invisible to us, but there are times when the Lord opened up some people's eyes, and he has in the past at least, and lets them see heaven. Uh, Please turn to Acts, the seventh chapter. He's not doing this anymore, but he has in the past. The reason he doesn't do this anymore is because we have the Word of God. This was before the Bible itself was compiled. Uh, In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, this is the uh, disciple Stephen. Um, And he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And then they cried and, uh, and said, Behold, let's see. and Jesus said, well, he said, Behold, uh, later on he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So, Steve, there's an example of where Stephen saw what is normally invisible to us. This wasn't a spiritual vision. The Bible says he looked up to heaven and he saw what he saw, just as he saw other things with his own eyes. And Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 of being brought into heaven. Because I knew a man, and most people think what he's really talking about himself, uh, that, was, that was caught up to heaven. And of course, John, the Apostle John, sees a lot of heaven in the book of Revelation. A lot of it is symbolic, but he, you know, he's seeing things that are normally not given to man to see. I mentioned light waves and about our eyes not being able to see the spectrum of light. Uh, is it possible, and here's where I'm going out on a limb and take it or leave it, is it possible that angels exist in the spectrum of light that's normally invisible to us? I don't know. I mean, is that what the Bible means by spiritual? Possibly? I don't know. We do know that angels can make themselves visible. So sometimes they're invisible and sometimes they choose to be visible. Uh... We're never told that angels are spirits, by the way, only that God is a spirit. Uh, and angels appear to, obviously, they can, they, they can make themselves known uh, physically. 
uh, when the Lord sends angels to his people, remember Lot? Uh, the angels came to rescue Lot. We get him out of Sodom. His family is uh, story. Uh, sent a- angels to Abraham and Sarah and the tent. Some of these are theophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, uh, but some appear to be uh, not of Christ. Uh, for example, when the angel says to John, don't worship me, you know, um, obviously that's not Christ. Uh, remember, when uh, Elisha prayed and his servant's eyes were open to see the hillside covered with angels, uh, maybe the Lord adjusts our vision or adjusts their placement in the light spectrum so they become visible to us. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. Does the fact that our eyes can only see a small part of the light spectrum keep us from seeing them? And to think this through a bit farther, does that explain in some way the nature of the resurrected body? Uh, remember, Jesus in his resurrected body was both physical uh, and yet could pass through solid objects. My point that we shouldn't uh, and we shouldn't jump to the conclusion because angels and souls and heavens are spiritual in heaven is spiritual. If angels are spiritual, therefore they must mean they have some kind of existence that we could call physical in some way. Uh, maybe physical, that word physical is not an adequate term for it. Maybe tangible existence. I don't know. Uh, maybe tangible and spiritual aren't necessarily exclusive. Uh, I don't know. I said I'm trying to speculate here, which is always a dangerous thing to do, and I don't normally do it, but it, uh, uh, it's uh, interesting. Um, the reason I bring this up is not only to kind of push the envelope a little bit, but it, it has to do with the state of the church today, the state of the evangelical Reformed church today. If I could, if, if, if I were asked, what, who is the uh, major intellectual force behind much of modern evangelicalism today? I would say it's Plato. Uh, now, how could Plato, who lived so long ago, govern the thought or influence the thought of the Christian church today? Well, as I describe it, you're going to recognize it. Plato said that matter is inherently evil and what he called forms. That is, abstract entities that exist independently of the world, of the sensible world, of the world of our senses. They are inherently good. Okay, Matter is bad, but these forms, these abstract entities, they're inherently good. So the early Christian church was very influenced by Platonism. Uh, they attempted to Christianize Platonism, and the result was a real mess. They taught that anything spiritual is inherently good and anything material is inherently evil, and this was, of course, the Gnostic view, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a, at the bottom of a lot of heresies. And today, many Christians are, are Platonists, even if they don't know who Plato was or what he taught. Uh, you can recognize a Christian Platonist when he tells you that heaven can't be physical in any possible sense, that people in heaven can't have bodies, they can't eat food, they can't know one another, uh, in fact, they don't do anything because anything that smacks of the physical is unspiritual. Uh, basically, it's dirty and probably evil. So that when Christians think that way, they're showing how they're influenced by Plato. Now, Plato is not somebody you want to emulate. He was a pagan. He was a homosexual. Uh, he was a pedophile, and he's in hell. So the fact that he's held up as a great thinker speaks a lot about our culture, doesn't it, and about our educational system. So contrary to Platonism, 
In the resurrection, our fleshly physical bodies are redeemed, changed, but they are still our bodies in some sense, and joined with our already redeemed souls. And remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, was on earth for 40 days. You know, he says, do you have anything to eat? To the disciples. And he ate, he ate broiled fish. And probably ate other things in those 40 days. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, says, Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. <coughs> slept, as we know in the Bible, quite often is used for the term physically died. So Christ has risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who had previously died and will die. That means he's the first to be resurrected from the dead, the first fruits, as we all will be. We will follow him. And he showed us what our resurrected body in some ways will be like. When Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, did he have a glorified body? No. No. Uh, He got his old body back. It was restored, but it wasn't a glorified body. Uh, He he lived and then he died later, like a normal uh, physical death. Christ is the first one to have the resurrected glorified body. And this body is physical, and yet it's beyond physical. Uh, He said in Luke 24, 39, well, actually, let's look at that, please. The very key verse. In Luke 24. The more I looked at this verse, the more I realized I'd never paid much attention to it before. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus first came to them, to the apostles after he'd been crucified and buried, uh, starting at verse 36 in Luke 24. And the soldiers also mocked. Uh, no, 24. That's wrong chapter. And they, as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto him. He stood, Jesus himself stood in the midst of him, not a spirit. Jesus himself stood in the midst of him. So they were, around, they were standing around speaking. And all of a sudden, he was there. He didn't come and knock on the door. He was just there. And going beyond, and he saith, uh, but they were terrified and affrighted, in verse 37, Luke 24, and suppose that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? So he was reading their, their minds as well, into their thoughts, which Jesus often did. Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while I yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And it goes on. The point is about his body, this glorified body that he had. See, it proves that, this proves that Platonism contradicts the Bible. Christ said, it is I myself, it's me. As we talked about in the sermon a couple of weeks ago, it's me, his resurrected body, he said, it's I myself. So I believe when in the new heavens, in the new, in the new earth, rather, uh, we will be ourselves, and we will greet each other and say, hey, it's me. Now, think about that. Think about the people who've died in the Lord that you love. You'll see that. You don't. He said, Jesus said, just because my fleshly body died, it didn't matter. He was still himself. It's me. It's me. It's I myself. He knew his friends. 
What can we learn? Jesus knew his friends. Jesus talked with them. He reasoned with them. He said he had flesh and bones. Now, these are resurrected flesh and bones. But he said, I have flesh and bones as you see me have. He said to his disciples, if you don't believe it, prove it to yourself. Touch me. You know, put, remember uh, doubting Thomas, you know, put your, put your hand, Thomas, put your hands here where, where I was nailed. You know, put, put your hand here on my side where I was, where I was, uh, uh, where a sword went through me. And what did Thomas do? He on his knees, fell to his knees. He said, my Lord, I'm going to come. So this proves Platonism contradicts the Bible. The physical is not evil. We will have physical bodies on the new earth. Uh, If you think as a Platonist, which a lot of the church did early, a lot of the church does today, you'll take all the verses that talk about physical resurrection, about heaven, the new earth, and you just take the book of Revelation, and Daniel, and parts of Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and just spiritualize them away in some soupy, meaningless, emotional fog. And that's what a lot of sermons in the evangelical church are. are. And they're a wimpy mess, quite frankly, quite often. Uh, they just, because they, they reflect the theology of the preachers. Everything is platinized, spiritual, spiritualized away into this fog. And you come out of church saying, what, what did I hear? What, I can't remember any of it. You know? Well, of course not, because it doesn't mean anything. Uh, the truth is, heaven is more solidly real than earth. The new earth will be more solidly real than this earth. But even heaven today is more solidly real than this earth. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But think about it. Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? If you've been influenced by Platonism, what are you going to do with a verse like Hebrews 8? If you look at that, please. Hebrews chapter 8, in the middle of verse 4, says, There are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Now that's a little obscure. The New King James, a little clearer on that. There are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what this says is that the Old Testament system is a copy and shadow of the things in heaven. The, the sacrificial system. the shadow of the things in heaven. So the things in heaven are the solid reality. The things on the earth are copies and shadows. See, Exodus 25.4, which is quoted here in Hebrews 8.5, says that Moses was instructed, uh, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. That's Hebrews 8.5, which is a quotation from Exodus 25.4. Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle according to the pattern that God showed him from the heaven on Mount Sinai. The solid reality was in heaven. And God gave Moses its pattern, its blueprint, so he could construct a copy on the earth. And that's not all. Uh, well, 
Okay, New Testament in Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. The figures, the pattern of of the true. The the representation of the true, which is in heaven. Uh, The New King James says, copies of the true. Christ is not entered into the holy place, is made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, excuse me, the very holy places, the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, are simply copies of the true ones, the reality which are in heaven. Not only is the original in heaven, but it's called the true. The holy places made with human hands, the tabernacle, the temple, are copies. And they're not called the true because they're inferior. Even though Moses constructing the tabernacle, Solomon constructing the temple, following the blueprint God had given them, they were still made by sinful men's hands. Sinful men's hands had touched them. Um, so they're inferior to the true tabernacle and temple, which is the original from which the blueprints were given from God to them. So the Bible says plainly the Old Testament sanctuary on earth was a copy of the real one in heaven. And it teaches, uh, Hebrews 12 teaches the New Jerusalem is presently in heaven, Hebrews 12 22. Revelation 2 7, Jesus says, To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I want you to think of the implications of all of that. We talked about Platonism. We talked about, we talked about visible light spectrums. We talked about, it all comes together here. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Is it possible that the tree of life, which was a physical tree in the Garden of Eden, exists physically in heaven. Jesus said, the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, what right do we have to assume that it's not literally true that the tree of life can't possibly be literally physically in the midst of paradise now? We know that Jesus ascended into heaven in his resurrected body. Did he lose that resurrected body when he got to heaven? We have no biblical biblical reason to believe that. Now, Jesus said that tree is there. Yes, he sometimes spoke in parables, but if you know anything about parables, you know that's not a parable. So we don't dare assume that Jesus spoke anything but the literal truth when he told the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We don't say, well, he didn't mean the thief would literally be with him in paradise. Nobody says that. They'd be calling Jesus a liar. So how could we dare to assume he isn't speaking the literal truth when he says the tree of life is in the midst of paradise? At least it's a possibility. Okay? Possibility. We take Jesus at his word there. It's a very interesting possibility. We know that the tree of life, where was the tree of life first seen? Garden of Eden, right? We know that the tree of life, by its very name, can never die. How can the tree of life die? It's the tree of life. <laughs> so it must still be in existence somewhere. At least, again, possible, likely, you know, these are, these are terms. I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. We know if we take the Lord Jesus at his word that the tree of life still exists in the middle of paradise, could it be that the Garden of Eden still exists somehow? 
Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and take a look at something very interesting. So I said you can accept this, reject it. I ask you to make it food for thought and food for Bible study. That's my main my main goal in this is, uh, is that you go back to the scriptures. A.W. Tozer said the best compliment I could possibly have on, on, on one of my books or a sermon was somebody said, boy, that, that made me put your book down and go to the scriptures. And that's what I want you to do. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, where the Lord drives Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden after they've sinned. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, by the way, there's the Trinity, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Does it say the Garden of Eden was destroyed? No. Only that no man, or at least no unredeemed man, can enter it. It's guarded. There are possible references to Eden still existing, by the way, as an aside. Um, you, they're on your handout. Genesis 4.16 is one, Exodus 31.9, and 31.16, Joel chapter 2, verse 3. Maybe references to the Garden of Eden still existing. In Revelation 22.2, John sees the tree of life in the midst of the New Jerusalem. Not a tree of life. It says the tree of life. The very same tree of life that can never die that was in the Garden of Eden, John sees. There's only one tree of life. So let's pull all these verses together. Since the tree of life may possibly, likely, put in your own adjective there, still exist, and we have no biblical evidence that the Garden of Eden was destroyed, it, may, it, it is not still on this earth, most likely, and we'll see why in a minute. And Jesus said in Revelation 2.7 that the tree of life is in the midst of paradise and John sees the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. Could Eden, the Garden of Eden, could that now still exist in paradise? The present intermediate heaven when saved ones go when they die? Is it part of the Jerusalem that will come down from heaven on the last day? Is it possible that the new Jerusalem, which it says, we know, we've read, will come down from heaven on the last day, it says in Revelation 21. Well, if it will come down from heaven on the last day, I guess that means it physically exists right now. It doesn't say in the Bible it's going to be created and then come down from heaven. It will come down from heaven. Are our friends and loved ones who die in the Lord in the new Jerusalem right now, what we call heaven, as we all will be someday? One more thing that adds to this equation and makes it even more thought-provoking. Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation, as many of you know, of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was in use at the time of Jesus. Um, in Genesis, the Greek word, paradisos, is used for the name of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because the word paradisos literally means royal garden, means the king's garden. And so it was translated in Genesis in the Greek version, 
of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, Septuagint, is the Garden of Eden, the king's garden, the royal garden, Paradisos. Now follow this. The New Testament writers wrote in Greek, mostly. In Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says to the repentant thief on the cross, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, the Greek word we see translated paradise in our English Bible is paradisos. So the Old Testament paradisos is the word for the Garden of Eden. The New Testament is translated paradise. Thus, when Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, he was saying, Today shalt thou be with me in the king's garden, in the Garden of Eden. See, one of my favorite books is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Anybody read that? It begins with a writer in a depressing, filthy town. The name of the town is called Grey Town. He boards a bus to take a trip, and much to his surprise, he finds that the farther the bus goes, the more he and the other passengers start to physically fade away. They become more and more like ghosts. And when they arrive at their destination, which is the most beautiful place they've ever seen, they discover they've all turned into ghosts. Everything in this place, the meadows, the trees, the hills, even the streams of water are more solid than they are. They can barely walk on the grass because the blades poke into their, their skin and hurt because they're so light and the grass is so firm and physical and they're so ghost-like, but they actually hurt. Now, the water is solid to them because it's a lot more real than they are. They can't put their hand in the water because it's like that. One of them tries to pick up an apple and he can't because it's too heavy. Then they're approached by these shining figures which as they come closer they recognize as their friends and their loved ones. Those who have died. And then they find out where are we? We're on the outskirts of heaven. And these people have come to meet them to urge them to repent of their sins and continue their journey to enter heaven itself. They're told that the pain and discomfort they're having will all go away when they enter heaven. And you know what the people, most of them do? They have all sorts of reasons why they can't do that. They have to get back on the bus. They have to get back to Greytown. Uh, so they will say, well, my business needs me. Uh, my family needs me back in Greytown. i got a lot of projects going on. I can't leave. A lot of things going on. I just, you know, not now, maybe later, but I, I can't do it now. And, or, well, I'm, you know, I'm having a lot of fun in Greytown, you know. They miss the fun, their TV shows or whatever. Um, they all have their own excuses as to why they can't go on to heaven. They have to go back to Greytown. What they don't know is that Greytown is hell. So one of Lewis's points is that when we, what we think of as solid and real is in fact a ghostly copy, a shadow of the true reality which is in heaven, just as we read from the scriptures. That's why the closer the bus passengers get to heaven, the more they fade into ghosts, because the earth is just the shadow of heaven. The closer the inhabitants of earth get to heaven, the more it's like a shadow coming into the sunlight. 
comparing what we see on earth to what heaven will be like, Lewis wrote, the hills and valleys of heaven will be to those you now experience on earth, not as a copy is to the original, nor as a substitute is to the genuine article, but as the flower is to the root, or the diamond is to the lump of coal. You know, we live on the lump of coal, and it's the diamond that's, that's heaven. So why should we think that heaven is a copy of earth and not the other way around? Isn't it more biblical to believe that the things of earth are a shadow, a copy of heaven? Which is, of course, what it says in Hebrews. So as Moses was instructed to make a tabernacle on the earth, and Solomon was instructed to build a temple after the heavenly pattern, it was the blueprint of what is already in heaven. Could it be that even the hills... Here, I'm sounding like Francis Nigel Lee. Here. <laughs> He's got some marvelous... Uh, thoughts about what heaven is like and what the new earth is like. Could it even be that the hills and the valleys of earth and the villages and the cities of earth are copies of the perfect hills and the perfect valleys and the perfect rivers and streams and cities in heaven? I don't know. There's so much more we can learn from the Bible about the present heaven and the new earth to come. But we're not going to make the mistake of Platonism. If this physical on earth is only a copy and a shadow of the reality of in, which is in heaven, if heaven is the real reality and earth is only a shadow, it's copy, isn't it probable the reality in heaven is more physical, whatever that may mean? That it's what we see and experience on earth is, as it were, hidden and covered, that the afterlife in heaven is the true reality. As Jesus promised in Matthew 10, 26, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Let's go to any prayer. Indeed, Father, these are deep, deep waters. And Father, forgive us if we have wandered into error here. We don't want to speculate beyond what, what is given to us in Scripture. But there are hints, Father, and we're told we are, uh, by, by Paul, as we read, that we are to understand what we can from the Scriptures about the afterlife as an encouragement to comfort one another with these words. Uh, Father, so we thank Thee for opening up even the deep things, some of the deep things to us, Father, and uh, guide us. Uh, Guide us, Lord. It's, it is my prayer that we all go back to the Scriptures after, after hearing this sermon uh, to see if these things are true. And uh, let us pray over the verses, Father. And Lord, uh, open our eyes that we might be encouraged and blessed uh, by the wonderful future that Thou hast given us, uh, uh, eternity with Thee, uh, both first in the intermediate state in heaven and then forever for eternity in the in the new earth. Father, we have prayer requests this morning.